Are you ready to explore something different, something more? On Straight Ahead, hosts Arya Tepper and I examine sources of cultural vitality, from jazz music to the Jewish tradition. If you're searching for generous and soulful approaches to contemporary challenges, join us for Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Greg Thomas, co-director of the Omni-American Future Project, and I'm joined by my co-host and fellow co-director, Arye Tepper. Greg, it's great to be here. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good, man. In our very first episode of our podcast, we speak with Coleman Hughes. Coleman is a writer, podcaster, and opinion columnist who specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. Right. And we hosted Coleman in November of 2022 at Mitten's Jazz Club. If you remember, the Omni-American Future Project, we held our in-person event. The Omni-American Future Project being a collaboration between CAM, Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, the Jazz Leadership Project, which you, Greg, are a co-founder and a co-director of, and the American Sephardi Federation, where I serve as director of publications. And we awarded for our second event to Coleman the Omni-American Young Leaders Award. And Coleman had a really interesting outcourse, a really interesting concluding line to receiving that award, which I really enjoyed talking about in this discussion. He, he talks, He said, we should be kinder to the heretics among us and consider being heretics ourselves. I thought that was, I, I hadn't heard that from someone receiving an award before in that context. I thought that was interesting. And I was glad that in this conversation, we got to take, we, we took a deep dive into the, to the idea of heresy. We sure did. We also talked about uh, race, culture, transgenderism uh, versus transracialism. When we talked about, you know, Coleman's bio, there are many people who follow him who may know uh, details about his bio, but I think we, in a very flowing way, integrated information that our new audience will appreciate about Coleman. And, uh, you know, Coleman, he's got his own podcast, Conversations with Coleman, and he also recently did uh, a TED Talk on colorblindness, which got a lot of attention and led to him doing a debate with a uh, New York Times opinion writer who took the pro, uh, not being, oh, sorry, the anti-colorblindness position, whereas Coleman was arguing for colorblindness. And of course, that relates to race. And again, race is a key topic, but we really get into a, a beautiful discussion about uh, deeply about music and culture and so many other things. So it's just great that uh, we're able to start off with Coleman. And here we go. Welcome to Straight Ahead. Coleman, uh, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're really glad you joined us today, Coleman. The tagline of the Omni American Future Project is character and culture, not color. So we, we emphasize cultural vitality and wisdom from wherever the source, with special info, inspiration, excuse me, from the blues and jazz tradition and the Jewish tradition as ways to confront bigotry, bias, and illiberalism. So Coleman, 
You and I met a few years ago when you were playing trombone with the Mingus Dynasty Band, right? I think it was actually the Mingus Big Band, though I have occasionally played with the Mingus Dynasty Band as well. You're right. It was the Mingus Big Band. And that was at the Jazz Standard, correct? Yes, RIP, which no longer exists. Um, but was it one of one of the best clubs, one of the best jazz clubs in New York City for many, many years? And I, um, story of how I got there briefly is that I, as you know, I think I, I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is a become a very big jazz town, partly because of people like Melissa Walker and Christian McBride, and I participated in the high school Mingus competition and won a soloist award when I was 16 or 17. And they invited, they invited me to sit in with a band during the competition. And then they kept inviting me back uh, on Mondays to, to play with the band. So I would like late junior and senior year of high school would take the train in after school from, I think from like the, one of the orange stops, like East Orange or something, and play from, you know, play two sets starting at 7.30, 9.30, and then get home real late and then wake up at 5.30 a.m., do my homework and, and, and <laughs> go to school the next day. But I loved it because it was, you know, it was just a pleasure to play with them. And they were, there was a lot of mentorship going on. So I had a great experience and still play with that band to this day, now 10 years. The most amazing part of that story is the waking up at five in the morning and doing your homework. I don't know. I don't know how I did that. That you're 16 playing, you're playing two sets is one thing in the city, but that you're waking up 5 a.m. the next day, that's another yeah. level. Would you say you're a morning person, Coleman? No, not really. I'm much more of a late night person. But at that time in my life, I had to wake up early mornings just to, you know, get the work done. And I really don't know what willpower possessed me to be able to do it back then, but I don't think I have that now. Well, it paid off, obviously. So that particular night, uh, your dad had invited me and others to, to check out you with uh, the Mingus Big Band, as you said, at the Jazz Standard. That was my favorite club, man. And uh, you were at Columbia University still as, as a philosophy undergraduate after transferring from uh, the Juilliard Jazz Program, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was at Juilliard Jazz Program for a few months right out of high school. And I dropped out uh, around the time that my mother passed away, took some time off and decided I wanted to go a different direction. So reapplied to Columbia, which I had applied to at a high school and went there and, and eventually settled on philosophy and then kept doing gigs on the side. Okay. So you mentioned that you were focusing on philosophy. Wasn't it in a philosophy class? I know you were taking several philosophy classes, but was it a feminist philosophy class that you were taking that had kind of a different uh, tenor or a different style or feel, we can say, than some of the other philosophy classes you were taking? Yeah. So I, the first blog post I ever wrote was for the Heterodox Academy, Academy blog. And I would have been probably a sophomore or junior at this point. One of my friends convinced me to take a class that was called Feminism and Philosophy with her. And I said, sure. You know, figuring, you know, having taken lots of philosophy classes where the, you know, the, the MO is that you are allowed and encouraged to ask any and all questions, allowed and encouraged to doubt or disagree with the author of the text that we're reading, as well as the professor. That's been the MO of every single philosophy class I've ever taken, really. 
and it's actually, you know, it's baked into the, the, the meaning of, of philosophy, really, so far as I understand it. This one class was different because it was much more, I guess, didactic, you could say. It was much more like, like attending an evangelical church where, you know, the, the fire-breathing pastor is, is going to tell you what's true. And no one is going to, you know, ask him to justify his claims, right? That's, that's what the entire vibe of this classroom was. And it was, it was kind of shocking. And I was kind of shocked that other people weren't shocked. I mean, most people in that class were not philosophy majors. So they, they, most of them didn't have a reference point for what, um, what reading Foucault was supposed to feel like. And in fact, you know, I was reading Foucault in two different philosophy classes at the same time the same text. I think, I think we were reading, um, what is his book? Uh, making sex, something, something like that. He has a, he has a famous book uh, about sex that we were reading. He has one book with the title discipline and punishment. Discipline and punish is another one we read the history of sexuality or something like that. Uh, Yeah. History of sexuality. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds right. So I was reading that in two different classes, one, which was a typical philosophy class where we were free to doubt all of Foucault's argument, if we did, in fact, doubt them. And also reading it in this other class where it was just, you know, being rammed down our throats as fact. And truth. And truth. Yes, as truth. Yes. And it was very disturbing to me that style of teaching was going on unchallenged. This was part of a, a trend of classes at Ivy League and elite colleges in certain departments where that style of teaching has become the norm, such as gender studies. Really, this was more of a gender studies class, which happened to be in the philosophy department. So I wrote a blog post about what it was like to be in that class as opposed to classes where you are encouraged to think freely. Yeah, and and you mentioned that the foundation of philosophy itself is about the kind of, you know, free exchange of ideas, if you're talking about going back to Plato and Socrates, and even before. The freedom to blaspheme. Uh-oh, uh-oh. You're going there already, huh? <laughs> that's, I think that's where we're going to go. All right. So, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about some, some themes. Um, but going back to that, when we first met, it was only after then that I had discovered that you had testified in D.C. in front of Congress with Ta-Nehisi Coates, a few feet away, against the um, proposal for reparations. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to you afterwards because, you know, we had transferred email addresses after I met you at Jazz Standard. And I congratulated you for your courage, you know, whether or not I agree with you or not, at your young age, frankly, to have the courage to take a stand like that where you knew that a, a lot of people particularly people in our idiomatic and ethnocultural group would be against that. You know, you would be facing the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're having you on. Of course, after mm-hmm. that, you you have now have your popular conversations with Coleman podcast, and you are uh, still jazz musician, as you've mentioned, as well as a hip hop artist. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to hand it over to Arye, who's going to give us some of the stations or themes that we intend to touch upon uh, in our conversation today. Right. So uh, thank you, Greg. And let me just add to that beautiful 
organic biography, intellectual, spiritual, musical biography that you just helped to bring out uh, and Coleman, which taught him his own autobiographical experience, my own personal experience, Coleman, which is in listening to you in various contexts. Um, there's this com uh, the compelling blend of caution, thoroughness, courage, and sobriety is very impressive. And I'm very excited for this conversation between us. And I'm excited that our audience is going to be able to, to enjoy this conversation as well. So we're going to hit three stations. Uh, the first station is Race in America. The second station is uh, nonconformity, which we've it's baked into everything we're doing, which upon closer inspection reveals itself to be heresy and blasphemy, which I'm guessing for Coleman is the original meaning of philosophy and the power uh, of music. So, Greg, uh, please. All right. OK, so speaking of, of music in your song titled Blasphemy, Coleman, you say I'm an American, omni-American. What inspired you to use that phrase? My friend Thomas Chatterton Williams introduced me to um, Omni Americans. By Albert Murray? Yes, by, by Albert Murray, close to the time that I was, you know, somewhat, maybe a few months before that reparations hearing happened. And I resonated quite a bit with the, the you know, just the idea that what used to be called the, the color line um, separating, you know, so called black and white Americans is. Uh, not nearly as real as we uh, we we take for granted. But certainly, it's it's quite real in many people's minds, but in some way, it is as real as we make it, or as, as real as we uh, choose it to be. And and given that, as white Americans and Black Americans, we've been sharing the same location, substantially the same language for for hundreds of years, right? The notion that we constitute so like two separate peoples in some way makes makes very little sense upon close inspection, given yeah. just given all of the uh, the back and forth and the the marriage of ideas and cultures and music and and all of it. So you know, Omni American is that that's that is sort of the shorthand for. Our being a, a more a more blended people than than we appear to be based on looks alone. Thank you. I, I agree with that that characterization. Uh, the blending that's one of the key themes, you know, in the book and in Murray's work as well as uh, Ralph Ellis and Stanley Crouch, who I first actually started to really delve into the work of Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray and reading his liner notes and his work in the Village Voice on Winter Marsalis and jazz and stuff. So I kept seeing and mentioned them. So I dived in and that blending that you're talking about is so key because the idea that there is a pure, whether you're talking about culturally or even, you know, biologically, you know, a pure stock, you know, or if you're talking about race theory, you know, a subspecies where you're kind of a different type of human that you call white or black is such nonsense. We're blended biologically, we're blended culturally, we're blended in terms of the regions that we come from, the way if you're down south, there's a certain way of speaking and your racial char characterization or categorization is not going to stop you from speaking a certain way. You know, it's like when you travel, 
to different parts of the world, a lot of time people find out just how American they are because other people identify them as such without them knowing, you know, without a racial categorization being a part of it. Wouldn't you say that's the mm-hmm. case, Coleman? Absolutely. Not only that, when there is some real outside threat to the country, people often discover how American they feel. And I think lots of people felt this on 9-11 and in the aftermath of 9-11 and probably to some extent at moments during the Cold War too, that you know, we can focus on our internal divisions very in a laser-like way until we realize that you know, we have enemies that consider us all equally American and that we uh, sometimes that can summon a feeling where you're just noticing how similar you are to your fellow Americans relative to certain people in the rest of the world. Have you given thought, Coleman, to in what contexts and in what manner outside of an out, aside from an outside threat, can you conjure up this fellow feeling, which is so necessary? for, you know, a, a representative republic. You, you have to have that fellow feeling among the citizens. So there's a, uh, I was talking about that exact question with the political scientist Yasha Monk, and he talked about a, a literature in the poli-sci field, which has found that when you, you know, one of the ways to create that fellow feeling is to, you know, is when you get people of different, you know, races or ethnicities or religions or tribes on the same team working towards a common goal when they're on equal footing. So for example, you know, this sports team or the army, you know, if you get people in a context like that where they have the same goal, they're working towards a common purpose and neither group is subordinate to the other in status, then you end up feeling like those people are your brothers and sisters regardless of how you started out feeling about them. So any institution which does that is helping to create that fellow feeling. And then secondly, it's important for people to be telling a similar story about who they are and, uh, and sort of what the meaning of their tribe is. So if, if you're American and you have a similar story to an American of a different color about what America is all about, a similar origin story, a similar story of the meaning of America, then that makes it much, much easier to create fellow feeling. If you have an incompatible story, if you're telling two stories that are not just different, but actually at odds, that makes it more difficult. So those are the two things that I would say. And it's interesting when you, when you think about, about race, the fundamental separation and kind of hierarchical ranking that race and racialization brings. You have a group of people based on their status or racialization as white being kind of the, the at the top, kind of at the top. And then on the other hand, people who are racialized as black being on the bottom. Fundamentally, that is going to be a different story if we allow that to be the basis of the story, whether you call it white supremacy, you know, the reality of race. That's why I really appreciate, Coleman, when you said so-called white people and so-called black people, which is like a direct quote from Murray's Omni-Americans. Absolutely. So I would say uh, 
that right now, why don't we transition to what Arye mentioned about nonconformity, blasphemy, yeah. and heresy. heresy. Yeah, heresy and blasphemy. These are exciting terms. So, Coleman, um, one of the themes of your uh, thought is heresy and, and blasphemy. And uh, it's a pattern that, that one can see. So, for instance, when you received the, the award, the Omni American Young Leaders Award, at our November 2020, 2022 event at Minton's, your out the way you finished, was you urged the audience to be heretics, which I thought was an interesting way to end an acceptance speech. Uh, you have a song called Blasphemy. And in your podcast uh, with Kathleen Stark, I believe it's her Stock. name. Stock, thank you. You concluded with a very interesting statement, which is that we should be kinder and more open to the blasphemers and heretics of our age. Now, when you say that, you're articulating a very fundamental insight regarding the human condition. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to articulate what I'm hearing from you and, and then give that back to you and, and hear your thoughts. What I'm hearing is that there is a permanent tension between thought and society. When you say that we need to be kinder and more open to the blasphemers and heretics of our age, what you're doing is you are kind of offering a blasphemous heretical thought that enlightenment societies are not by definition open, that every, rather every human society is closed. Every human society at every time has its own closed horizon. And so truth, as it were, is always a stranger in any human society. Now, this idea was articulated way back in the day. Like, there's an old story in our tradition going back to Plato's cave, back to the day when people wrote books, when they remembered people living in caves, or perhaps Plato even knew people still living in caves. One might think that having left the physical cave, we are now emancipated and free. Plato, through the metaphor of the cave, said, no, the spiritual intellectual cave remains. We might be out here under the open sky. And it looks like everything is open, but we are still in our, in our caves. So, uh, you know, it, if we can just uh, real briefly trace the metaphor so that we can then return. And, uh, and, and I think it's going to be really interesting to fit race back into this conversation here. Every human society being a cave, we, uh, the way Plato imagines it, we're all sitting in this cave with having been born into slavery in chains, looking at the wall, and then there are people behind the few of the elites carrying the signs that are reflected onto the wall, the shadow play on the wall. And the residents of the cave believe that's reality. That's all they know. And for those for whom the chains are released and they make the difficult transition out of the cave, they question the orthodoxy of this particular society and move into the light, You've got this dazzling experience of openness and, and doubt. And then when you try to return to the cave and speak to people, it's very difficult. That's the, that's the permanent human situation. We lose sight of that often because we're living in a, an enlightenment society that trumpets free speech and, and, and open discourse. But we have our own 
horizons and they change, but they, they, it's, it's, it's built into the, to the human condition. So now looking at that in these terms, so two things, A, I think then perhaps race, it's helpful. This metaphor is helpful for understanding race. Race is one of those images, those shadows projected onto the wall of the cave. And when you're trying to talk to people about deracialization, it's, it's, they, you sound mad to them because that's the world that they know. And then B, Coleman, it, when in your thought about heresy, blasphemy, uh, and it, it, am I hearing correctly that for you this is equivalent to the, to the primal meaning of what you talked about earlier from what you learned at Columbia, which is the meaning of philosophy? Uh, yeah, I mean, very, very much yes to both counts. I think it's very easy to see heretics and blasphemers of the past as heroes. You know, if you grab a random person off the street and tell them what Gal- Galileo was put under house arrest for, they'll say, oh, my God, that's insane. He He was living in crazy times. The fact he was unable to simply express that point of view without being put under house arrest, just proves how crazy society is. And of course, he ended up being correct. What absolute, you know, insane people he must have been living around. If you take that same person and talk to them about, you know, uh, modern society and modern intellectual taboos, they're likely to act like uh, the people who arrested Galileo. Right, they are likely to th- right. to 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 have the exact kind of uh, taboos and taboos around certain beliefs, certain topics. It just it won't be the ones of the same topics that Christian Europe had had taboos around hundreds of years ago. It will be a different set. It will be a set of taboos unique to you know modern Western societies largely secular societies. But the dynamics of those taboos are not different than the dynamic of religious taboos. So that's why the concepts of heresy and blasphemy, which used to be formal, real uh, concepts that people would simply name you a heretic or or a blasphemer with no self-consciousness. As you point out, now that we live in sort of post-enlightenment societies, societies that self-identify as pro-free speech and pro-liberal values. At the same time, we still have those religious impulses for taboo creation. So we can no longer actually point to someone and say, you are a blasphemer, you are a heretic, be gone with you. We have to say it in other ways. Uh, But the dynamic psychological and social dynamic of punishing and canceling people for viewpoints that they hold is precisely the same. And it's, it's, so it runs deeper than a religious problem. It's actually a problem of human nature, which is that we are intensely social beings. We like to identify with the tribe and that has both good and bad consequences. But one of the bad ones is tribes coalesce around beliefs. And those beliefs are often incorrect. And someone that points that, points that out, points to a different uh, view, threatens the, 
the glue that holds the tribe together right. or, or is at least is perceived as threatening the glue that holds the tribe together. And so that person must be made an example of rather than simply um, argued against. And the, the enlightenment philosophers like John Stuart Mill and others, you know, at their best, the ideals that they held up was an end to that dynamic and a substitution of that dynamic with one where everyone can hold an opinion and the answer to speech you disagree with or even hate is more speech and better speech rather than casting out of society. Right. That's excellent. Can you hold with that with that view of Mill that a liberal society should aspire to the maximum freedom of speech and discourse, but also attenuate your expectations from politics. So even with that vision of that of being the best of enlightenment liberal politics, I'm not deluding myself into thinking that we are going to that we have created or that we ever will create a fully open society. Of course not. Yeah, it's it's not compatible with human nature to create a society that is perfectly free, perfectly open, perfectly peaceful. These are all ideals to aspire to and to incrementally, step by step, go towards, but we'll never actually reach them. That's a very mature, in fact, I would say that that is a, a blues-infused yeah. perspective, Coleman, Yeah, mm-hmm. that uh, I, I would also say that it encompasses what uh, philosopher, education philosopher, metapsychologist Zach Stein calls a, a post-tragic position an aspect of it, by which I mean, you've got pre-tragic, you know, awareness or consciousness like children. They're innocent, you know, they're just curious and, and the world's, you know, just a new place and beautiful. Tragic is when you realize, oh my goodness, there's death, there's pain, there's trauma, you know, there's injustice. But the post-tragic is what I think is like the blues idiom perspective, it acknowledges the reality of the tragic, but it says, you know something? That is the human condition, but let's keep striving to make things better. Let's keep moving in a particular direction where we can encompass the best values of the past and and move forward in a way that our differences don't have to become the basis for disunity. But I do want to ask a question that kind of ties this together, the the race conversation and the blasphemy heretic conversation. So we've already mentioned your episode with Kathleen Stock uh, Coleman, which was titled Trans Rights Versus Women's Rights. And my question is, why do you think that postmodernists and certain progressives seem to have been a real flexibility when it comes to gender categories. You know, they talk about a spectrum beyond male and female, but when it comes to race, there's more rigidity and lack of flexibility. In fact, I heard you make that point once that, you know, and I said, you know, he's right. So could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, to the question of why I'm not quite sure, uh, but you know, it, it is true that race is, much more of a social construct than biological sex. Uh, now, I'm making a relative claim there. I don't. We don't have to get into the topic of you know whether gender identity versus sexual identity. But 
you know, whatever you believe about biological sex, about males and females, I think you have to acknowledge that race is more socially constructed than that, right? Because, you know, they're, if, if you look out into the, the animal kingdom, you're going to see male and female. You're going to see, right. you're going to see, um, in, in the human case, XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes. Now, if you try to boil race down to anything that discrete, you're not going to find anything, right? There's, there's nothing that you're going to find in the genome, which all black people have, for instance, that all white people don't, right? There, there just is no such marker of race at the genetic level that is as distinct as, as uh, the chromosomes. So it would seem if, you're, if we're going to make a move towards fluidity, the first candidate would be the most socially constructed thing, which would be race. And then the later candidate would be the somewhat less socially constructed thing like biological sex. In reality, it's backwards. It's that uh, we, have, we have made a move towards you know, radical fluidity on the, on, the, on the topic of gender such that I could, you know, if, I, if I wanted to, I could just identify as gender fluid or gender neutral and ask you to call me they or, or ask you to call me she. And presumably, you know, many people would respect that. But, you know, if someone like Rachel Dolezal asked to identify as a black person, because that's how she feels on the inside, you know, and, and like granted, it can be tough to understand what claims like that mean, but like just taking it at face value that someone like her feels black on the inside Almost no one feels tempted to respect her. And in fact, most people feel an urge to ridic- ridicule and bully in that case. Uh, and, and so it is, it, it is strange. And, and in fact, I think Rebecca Tuvel was the name of a philosopher who, during the Rachel Dolezal incident, wrote a paper, I think for the journal called Hypatia, just comparing the philosophical merits of transgenderism to the philosophical merits of transracialism and finding that every single argument that you could make in favor of respecting the transgender identity as a valid one would equally apply to respecting the transracial identity as a valid one. And she was correct about that. Her paper got, I believe her paper got retracted. I could get the, I may have gotten the details wrong, but her paper was very poorly received. And I think ended up being retracted from that journal. It had nothing to do with the context co- contents of the paper. In fact, I think it was only upsetting precisely because it was very measured and uh, her argument was very compelling. But it was, it was, again, it was hitting against just a taboo of modern society, which is people have already decided that transgender is valid and transracial is not. So, they, and then they work backwards from that conclusion. If you actually think in a principled way from the bottom up, right. uh, they are quite similar. And in fact, you could argue transracialism makes more sense, but you need not even argue that. You could just argue that broadly all the arguments in favor of respecting the one apply to the other. That's, that's excellent. Thank you for that reference, Coleman. So there seems to be a policing of racial classification and racial categories frankly, on both sides 
of, you know, the political spectrum. It's on the left and the right that these racial categories are like, you know, almost sacrosanct. So, you know, as you, as you may know, uh, I'm an advocate for a word that Arya used uh, that he basically said gets dismissed out of hand. And that's deracialization, which is basically the idea that fundamentally we as human beings, period, and that we, in this case, as Americans, have been racialized. We've had racial categories put on us and and then we ascribe to certain racial categories, but they are not real biologically. And that even if we say that race quote unquote, is a social construction, which you've referred to, we still can decide individually and collectively to stop buying into it because it's subscribed to us. We don't have to subscribe to it. So that's the stance that I have. There's more details about it. It goes into what race is. Race has people are in our subspecies. Racialization, the process of creating races a racial worldview, seeing the world through the lens of race, where you're a racial agent in a racial arena. So, and all of that together creates racism fundamentally. But I'm wondering what you think, you know, in terms of just a basic way, there's more depth to it, I, I will just, I will say. But what do you think? Because you're actually writing a book, if I'm not mistaken, on, on dealing with race. That what do you think? And I know you did a show with Dr. Sheena Mason, who has a theory of racelessness. Do you think that it is possible for me? I mean, I can say it's possible because I've done it. I know it's possible. I I no longer racialize myself. I am culturally speaking an Afro-American. I'm a part of a people with a particular experience in a geographic area of North America that's built and developed certain cultural traditions and responses to the social, economic, and political situation we were put in. So I don't deny our peoplehood. Mm-hmm. But race, no. And I have stopped racializing others. So I know it's possible, but I know it's a big uphill you know, uh, battle. Do you think it's possible to, to deracialize Coleman? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's definitely possible for individuals, and I think it's I think it's the mark of a subtle thinker who who makes the distinction between race and sort of ethnocultural group, right? And I that's a distinction I would also make, like in in asking people to get rid of racialized thinking, I'm not asking people to abandon their culture, right? And I think that's that's a, a common misperception of what someone like you or or Dr. Sheena Mason or myself might be saying is that, well, why are you asking me to give up my culture? My culture, you know, we all, none of us is a sort of universalized human being for, who who comes from nowhere and has a view from nowhere. We all come from a particular context that is a... Right a unique context that is not the same as other contexts. I come from a particular culture, particular language, particular geography, particular history, and all of that informs uh, who I am and my values and so forth. I think that's all fine. Um, it's all, you know, inevitable. Uh, and, and actually quite a bit of beauty in life comes from attachment to roots. But the idea that that's the same as race I think those ideas have gotten become conflated in a, in America so that 
when you talk about race, people think you're talking about that. And in many cases, they are talking about that. But they are distinct ideas. Isn't the Omni-American project what, what we are doing? If we accept the premise, you know, Coleman's referring to individuals can leave the cave. But the, the possibility that an entire society, it's, it's very difficult. The possibility that American society will emancipate itself from, from the uh, folklore of race. That's a difficult mission. But the, the, the possibility that we can cultivate a community within the United States of people who understand the fundamental distinction between race and culture, then create that fellow feeling and the, the connection to, to that idea through you know, the omni-American tradition. If we set the goal at the, at the cultivation of a community, as opposed to the, you know, the redemption of, of the whole, that's, that's, a, that's a doable goal. And, and concomitant to that is, is embodied in that in terms of beginning of what's first for us here and now is that if we, if, if we get there, then that implicitly we will be counterstating and opposing, you know, the liberal left, the liberal right, that which gives birth to anti-Semitism, racism, and those problems across the board. Uh, definitely. I just want to say very quickly uh, in agreement that what we need is not the whole society. We don't even need 50%. We need what in certain contexts they would call a critical mass or to, to riff on the, the, the popular idea, a tipping point. We need a group of people who will share what Dr. Collars Hoyt Jr., the author of Transcend, I'm sorry, under the arc of a bad idea, understanding and transcending race, which was very influential on the way I see things and what he calls a non-racial worldview. We need enough people to embrace that, that idea right. and maintain their rootedness, as Coleman has said, their ethnicity, right. you know, whatever their religious background, their cultural practices, linguistic, uh, and, but also to recognize that culture, the way culture works, there's always interminglings among peoples and all those things anyway. Yeah. Enough of us to embrace that so that people can see that, wow, it's really possible. Oh, you have human beings, you have Americans who really do not buy into race and racial categorization while we take certain structural and systemic steps like changing the census and that kind of thing. So I, I do think it's possible. But Coleman, would you agree that, um, you know, that we, should, we could take small steps in that direction and, uh, and not try to bite off more than we could chew? Of course. Of course. No doubt. Okay, cool. So why don't we transition to music? Uh, we started off by talking about music and now let's talk about the power of music. I mean, you mentioned actually when we were off camera that you, you know, like a lot of boys, sports early on was, was, a, was a focus, you know, and that was the same for me, particularly with regard to basketball and football. But then music came in my life and it was like, oh my God, it was a whole nother cosmos, a universe of sound and feeling. Um, when did the music bug, so to speak, uh, hit you? Um, and when did you decide to actually become a musician, a professional musician? I guess the music bug hit me probably when I was around like 11 years old. Uh, I was playing drums at that time, a little bit of rock drums and also timpani and percussion in orchestra around sixth grade. And 
just something about the experience of playing classical symph- symphonic music really blew my mind. And it was my favorite period in, in school every day. And the, actually the high school teacher allowed me to play percussion in the high school group when I was in seventh grade. Um, because I was so enthusiastic and and so forth, and I was uh, I I had natural some natural talent, and then seventh grade I I became frustrated with drums because you can't play melodies, so I started <laughs> unless you're Max Roach, that's true. <laughs> so I started trombone, not really for any deep reason, but I knew I wanted to play a brass instrument. And I, I thought the pushing and pulling of the slide looked cool. So it was really nothing <laughs> deeper than that. But I ended up having, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is like whether you're, uh, obviously people like to say if you work hard at anything that you, you could, you can be great at it. But that's not all that's true. Not true. The, the, other, the other part <laughs> of the truth is that you have to have some natural predilection for it especially with brass instruments, getting the right fit for your lips type and your mouth structure. And it turned out I, ha- I was pretty compatible with the trombone. And so, you know, I got over the next, within the first two to three years, I got pretty good to the point where I could almost, you know, play professional at that point. So that's really, uh, and then the jazz bug struck me maybe you know, a year after I started playing trombone. So I, I really, the bug really struck me in a classical music context and then extended and exploded in a jazz context. Wow. So with regard to the jazz context, I mean, when you ask Ron Carter, great legendary bassist, his influences, he actually points to non-bassists. Uh, did you focus on on cats in your on your instrument or, I mean, how did you go about assimilating some jazz history and, you know, the masters of the, of the idiom that didn't further inspire you to keep going and keep playing and, and learning and growing? I think the first jazz I loved was Duke Ellington from playing big band music just at my school. And that led me to John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Charlie Parker. Those were my early influences, JJ Johnson as well. So I would say oh, that yes. I was very omnivorous with regard to instruments. I didn't, I didn't exclusively focus on the trombone, mm-hmm. which is a good thing because the trombone doesn't have a, enough of a, a slice, a large enough slice of the jazz hist- history to have a good meal if, <laughs> only, with, only with that. I would say you'd be missing a lot if you only listen to jazz trombonists as, as great as that history is. So yeah, I, I learned as much or more from outside musical influences uh, as well. What would you say are some of the connections between jazz and hip hop? Improvisation, um, I would say, is the main one. Whereas in in classical music, though, you will be told by some people that like there's an improvisational component. It's basically been stamped out of the music at this point. Um, Absolutely, yeah. and Con- concert, concert. Classical yeah. music, and, for and sure. not only that, yeah. like e- even when it was a part of the music, it was never a central part of the music. In my, in my understanding, you can interpret a melody, you could add a little flair here, but fundamentally, the idea of setting two minutes aside and having you play a fully improvised solo—that's something that jazz, as an American art form, or as a modern 
kind of genre of music pioneered. And of course, there's improvisation in all kinds of folk music all, all around the world. Right. And and so to carry that forth, I think hip hop really it took from that same that same feeling that you you know the concept of a freestyle is just you know the the hip hop version of of a jazz solo and i i would say it also probably took what you would call like the blues sensibility the sense of singing or playing or rapping about something tragic uh about struggle about poverty about misery and and making it beautiful right yeah that that post tragic that i riffed on if if that's the deep wisdom of the blues if we go back to the question of being able to demarcate the limits of what we can expect from a political society, I mean, perhaps one of the reasons, you know, for the extremism that we're seeing with, with the trans idea, various ideas, is they, they don't see any, these are people who don't see any limits on what you can do with politics. And that the, the blues is teaching something so fundamental when you say that, you know, the blues are always they're waiting, they're waiting. The blue devils are waiting to come back and, and, and you know, they're, they're <laughs> in, inevitable. You can't avoid them. So that, that deep blues but wisdom has, has a lot to offer to, to the American conversation today. Absolutely. Ralph Ellison once wrote that the, the blues is there in part to, to let human beings realize their limitations. We, we have limits, you know, we strive for, you know, the stars and, and, and to realize our dreams and our visions, but there are limitations there and the blues is there to remind us of that. One other big similarity between hip hop and jazz is that they encourage individuality and uniqueness of voice. Ah, Whereas yes. uh, classical music does not encourage you to sound like to a lesser degree, I would say it encourages you to sound different from your peers. It is right. somewhat more focused on conforming to an agreed upon notion of of the good and and the and beauty. Whereas in jazz, you actually don't want to sound like a copycat, even if you sound amazing. That mm -hmm. is so true. In in the Jazz Leadership Project, the company that I run with my wife Jewel and the company that did a presentation at J.P. Morgan Chase. When your father, uh, Coleman, was there, and that's how he ended up inviting me to come see you play, we did a presentation for them. We have a, a, a practice called Your Sound that's grounded in the value system uh, in the music. It's like you're supposed to develop your own voice, your own style. You know, we each as human beings have an individual fingerprint and footprint, then play that. You know, Wayne Shorter... Um, I never forget interviewing Wayne Shorter one time, Coleman, and, and he was talking about his, his, his time with Miles Davis. And he said that he was talking to Miles Davis about some, you know, philosophical ideas or that kind of thing. And he said, yeah, Miles was, you know, he was like that. He said, but then Miles looked at him and said, play that. <laughs> that philosophy you're talking about, play that. You know what I mean? So um, how do you connect, you know, music? And I, I did hear you, I think, say to Kathleen Stock that, if I remember correctly, you um, usually think of music more in a subjective way and you haven't really, you know, talked, uh, thought that much about the philosophical dimension. But that was about, you know, five or six months ago. How do you connect 
you know, music and say, you know, an omni-American idea and idea, knowing, of course, that Ellison and Murray uh, and Sally Crouch, when Marsalis, you know, blues and jazz was fundamental to them. That's kind of a framework. But I'm just wondering how do you, how do you, or do you connect um, those ideas in some way? Well, I guess the only connection I see is, is just to like the polyglot melting pot of it all, because clearly all of, pretty much all of these musical genres have been, you know, the purest would say contaminated, but like they've all been built based on all the other genres that were around. And I know Ted Joya, who I've had on my podcast, great music. I wouldn't call him a critic, much more of a historian, I guess, music historian. Yeah, he's a historian for sure. um, Has made the point that often the great new genres come from cities that are like port cities uh, like New York and New Orleans, precisely because they're cities that are settled by lots of different ethnic groups, uh, lots of different cultures, different languages sometimes, and the music just gets shared and then something new results. And then that new thing that new genre will now have purists that want to claim that oh, this is a, a purist art form that has this origin story and cannot be contaminated by the outside, which is hilarious because if you look at the birth story behind any genre, it's usually a combination of previous pure elements, which themselves are combinations of previous pure elements <laughs> on down back to you know Adam and Eve. So... <laughs> Um, so that's the, the sense in which Omni-American, the Omni-American spirit has something to do with music is that I really do not discriminate in my music taste. I will listen and, and give a real hearing to music from any background and like with, without snobbery or, or uh, you know, ethnocentrism because my feeling is that there is definitely beauty and there are gems in every single genre of music if you are open-minded enough to to listen wow thank you so much coleman i just wanted to really express the appreciation i had for that um how you brought all that together and i think it should be clear why we at the omni american future project selected you as the winner of our Young Leaders Award in 2022, because you really embody and exemplify uh, the Omni-American ideal. But are you, what were you going to say? I love, I love the fact that when he's on the Omni-American podcast, he's blaspheming against Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch. That's what I love about uh, uh, Coleman and the, 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 my musical tastes don't discriminate. We got to explain that. Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch were more, in terms of jazz, they had certain boundaries that they pretty much stayed within. That, for the audience, is what Arye is referring right. to. And he's talking about the kind of the Catholicity and cosmopolitan approach of Coleman, you know, in mm-hmm. contrast. So that's... that's we, we can, I think we can count on Coleman in any cultural context to, to listen closely enough to find the right place to blaspheme, which is a beautiful talent. But, I, <laughs> but if, just staying within the context of, of, of jazz, uh, you would agree, Coleman, that if you're going to play jazz, that there is a tradition and that you have to respect the tradition and that you have to, you can't just appropriate the name jazz because I'm improvising. 
and you have to you have to learn to listen and accept that there are masters and there is excellence and you know you you, you got to be able to swing you've got to have that feeling you've got to be you know deeply grounded in, in in the blues you have to have a knowledge of harmony you have then at the end you have to be able to improvise and what comes from the soul and the courage in your own voice not everything can 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 be i i, I while on the one hand we can have that openness of, and, and receptivity. And, we, and there is nothing, and yes, there's nothing pure about jazz. There can't ever be. And there's nothing pure about American culture, American culture itself. Right, right. How, yeah, but even though it can't be pure, it's got to be excellent. I would phrase it differently. I wouldn't want to say that you have to respect the history. You have to respect the masters. You have to respect the tradition. The way that, almost as like a, uh, like a, a command, right? right? The way that I would phrase it is that in practice, those daring jazz musicians, you know, of the modern school or of any school, those that really tend to create very good and interesting music, almost to a one, do love the tradition and respect. Uh, it's not that they, it's not that uh, I wouldn't want to create a rule such that like you have to. Because, you know, the second, the second you create a rule like that, someone comes along and violates it, right? But in <laughs> practice, I think the people that end up making notable music, it's usually because they've looked at the past and ab- absorbed a lot of it and so are able to do something new within the general arc. So, for, like, for example, it's, it's like, are there any great movie directors that just don't give a shit about the history of filmmaking? <laughs> Probably not, because it's just like the people that end up making weird, cool new movies, they're usually obsessed with the tradition, even though they're departing from it substantially. Right. So again, it's not that that's necessary. It's not that it's necessary. But in practice, in order to become great and, and weird and unique, you often just are into the whole tradition of other people that were unique and different in their own times. That is such, that's so beautifully put, eloquently put. I mean, Ornette Coleman in jazz, he's grounded in the blues. He's from Texas, but he was able to, you know, create more open, free, or so-called free forms um, that I think took jazz into more of a postmodern kind of era from the modern bebop tradition. But, you know, we want to be respectful for, for your time. And Coleman, we, we really thank you for joining us. And is there anything you know you'd like to say uh, in closing? No, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on the the podcast, and good luck with it. And um, it was a pleasure to receive the award a few months ago. Thank you so much. Thank Coleman. you very much, Coleman. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Straight Ahead, the Omni American Podcast. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast, and fight for a future where the many can join as one against bigotry.